This is a download from BFM 89.9, the business station. Buy the book on BFM 89.9. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Buy the Book. I'm Lee Chui and with me is my fellow childhood newspaper reader, Sharmila Ganesan. Hello, I thought you might say the Hobbes to my Calvin, which I would have gladly taken as well. I I really think we are going to have to tussle that out. I'm surprised that you automatically thought of me as a Kelvin. I did not. I actually also think we might veer between each one uh, depending on our moods. And that sets us up because today it is our monthly bibliography episode. And if you are hearing this show on July 5th, which is the first day that it goes to air, then today is actually the birthday of William Boyd Watterson II, although you probably know him better by Bill Watterson or the cartoonist behind the much, much loved comic strip, Calvin and Hobbes. And also potentially the only thing you might know him for, because Bill Watterson is tremendously talented, but he's also very resolute in uh, the kind of work he does uh, and and really the larger idea of uh, what his work stands for. And other than Calvin and Hobbes, he's really not done too much. And and I don't mean that as a criticism. A lot of the stuff he's done has to do with uh, perhaps uh, writing forwards for others or putting together tributes to other comic artists. But Other than Calvin and Hobbes, he really is sort of a very quiet and rather unknowable man. Which is not to say that he has not had a larger impact on the world of publishing outside of Calvin and Hobbes, right? Um, Because as we're going to get into... Actually, I learned a lot researching this because I I know Calvin and Hobbes inside out. I've, I've read everything. But I didn't know about, for example, comic syndication. I wasn't very familiar with that. Mm. And he's had uh, he's taught me a lot uh, when it comes to that. There's also the, the fact that he viewed newspaper comics or comics in general as art, that there's no distinction to be made between high art, low art, the fact that he has refused to allow for merchandising, the fact that he's refused to allow for movie adaptations. There's a lot to get into. But to begin at the beginning, he was born in Washington, D.C. on July 5th, 1958. But he actually grew up primarily in, I love this, that the author of Calvin and Hobbes grew up in Chagrin Falls, Ohio. <laughs> no, I love that. And also the um, the look of Ohio, particularly the uh, the trees and the landscape is, I think, something that pops up in uh, the background of his panels quite often. So, you know, the Midwestern look, essentially. Uh, so it's quite nice to, to kind of make that connection. And... Um, His dad was a patent lawyer, which I thought was also quite interesting, given that later on, um, a lot of his uh, a lot of his legacy has so closely brushed up against notions of ownership and uh, trademarks and so on. Um, And really, he's one of those creatives that from the beginning, it was quite clear what it was he was going to turn out to be. He was hugely into drawing and cartooning as a kid. He was drawing cartoons in school. And as a child, he was really a a huge fan of uh, Peanuts in particular, but also other comic strips like Crazy Cat and Pogo. Um, And all of these are influences that he would go on to continuously cite as he made his way to fame. So he was broadly considered an unassuming child, quite quiet, uh, spent a lot of time on his own drawing, cartooning, um, you know, loving the the comics that you just mentioned. And this is kind of not uncommon, I suppose, for a lot of the authors that we talk about. But I think... um, Perhaps in comparison, I mean, I'm thinking of the reading that we've done for for the other authors, the research. And one through line that I think comes out loud and clear in Bill Watterson's work and approach to his work is that he made it for himself. So a lot of 
the stuff that he loved went into the work. But after that, the sensibility of Kelvin and Hobbes, the way that the characters um, interacted, the way in which he preferred to work, which is with as little intervention as possible. All of that comes from the fact that he made this primarily for himself. And that is kind of the prerogative of an artist, not always the prerogative of a commercial cartoonist, perhaps one might think. And um, I I think that I'm just going to draw a loose line between spending a lot of time on your own, drawing comics for oneself and working your way towards that being your career as well as in some ways your legacy. And I think you can see that that trajectory really quite clearly with Bill Watterson because he was a he would contribute cartoons in his uh, in his school newspaper and then later the school yearbook and subsequently for his college newspaper as well. Um, I'll get to that in a bit, but I think it's worth saying that he studied political science um, despite having sort of said that he wanted to become a cartoonist, but he thought that having a grounding in politics would help because he was initially very keen on going into political cartooning. And then he got fired. Yes, <laughs> so, yes. So he um, actually did have a job, right, as a political cartoonist. That was his first job. But yes. he got fired because he just wasn't quite cutting it. And he, uh, in his own words, he didn't really know the political scene so well. Um, I also love the fact that one of his college newspaper cartoons, uh, the early days, was actually the original Spaceman Spiff cartoons. Um, that was something I didn't realize. I thought he had made that up for Calvin and Hobbes. Um, so it's a little bit of a trivia to, to realize that that predates Calvin and Hobbes, really. And yeah, that really just paves the path to what we later get to know him as, which is um, a comic strip artist because the political cartooning didn't quite work out. There's a lot that I loved that I found out on this deep dive of Bill Watterson. There was a lot. Um, But one of the things that I enjoyed quite a bit is the fact that he considers himself and clearly works to the ideals of an artist. He's not working um, to... He, he's not working in any other regard. In fact, it's something that he draws a distinction in in the very few interviews that he's given quite clearly, where he's like, yeah, you, you can create something so that it can be merchandised. You can perhaps have an assistant help you draw or letter, because I don't like lettering. I could have done that. But then it wouldn't be mine. And if you're going to be an artist, then I want the the whole thing to sink or swim based on my work and my what, what I am able to do. And I really love that because... Of course, the flip side of that is that this is art that is going out on a daily basis in a four-panel cartoon. And so it is art that is determined not just by the characters and the storyline, but also the actual form. And that's something that I really enjoy because it's not one that we get to explore a lot uh, when we talk about writers, right? Because traditionally you're discussing novels or short stories. This is something that is its own thing and entirely separate. So the the form is actually something he became rather associated with and involved in later on in his career, Uh, but we can get to that later. I did think that we should say that the inspiration for Calvin and Hobbes or the names Calvin and Hobbes actually comes from his political science background because they're famously named after philosophers uh, John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes. And I just wanted to read this little quote. So Watterson says that uh, Calvin was named for a 16th century theologian who believed in predestination and Hobbes for a 17th century philosopher with a dim view of human nature. Uh, I have a question for you. Is this the first time you learned about uh, John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes? Because it was for me. I mean, not this moment, but through Calvin and Hobbes, that's how I found out about these two men. No, so... 
it's weird. So I knew about John Calvin and Thomas Hobbes, was a fan of Calvin and Hobbes. And these two things existed in parallel <laughs> without me ever making the connection until I think one of his collections, he writes it in the foreword. Um, and then I was like, oh, and I get it. And it's really so cool. So for me, it was my pathway to it because I, of course, read Calvin and Hobbes when I was a child, child, really a kid. And so it was the combination of having been a longtime reader of the comic strip uh, or rather of the collection and then subsequently having access to the internet that allowed me to actually make that kind of connection because um, even when he wrote about it, I was like, oh, okay, well, I'm, I'm not sure who these people are. And then I had an encyclopedia, I had the internet and that's finally how it all came together. Um, and I think that's kind of a neat opening to ask, how did you encounter Calvin and Hobbes? Did you encounter it in the newspaper first or in the collections? Newspaper, for sure. Um, I used to avidly wait for them for the news strip every Every, I can't remember now every day or every week, but definitely in the newspaper first. I, in fact, only got to buying the collections much later, like in my late teens, maybe. Fascinating. So um, I picked up the collections at one of those random book sales that you get from time to time, right? That's where I encountered my very first anthology or collection of Calvin and Hobbes. I can't remember if it was The Amazing or uh, The Indispensable, but it, but it was one of those. And that's how I came across it. And then I started paying attention to it in, in the funny pages. But prior to that, um, that's how I encountered it. And I ask because the thing about the success of Calvin and Hobbes is that it was slow in the first year. So this is something that he spoke about, that in the first year... Um, of actually having the syndication go out to the various newspapers, what he said was that the, the big-time players uh, were in thousands of newspapers around the country, and he was in 50. But what happened was that for some reason, a publisher picked it up, and for some reason, the for some reason is his words, by the way, um, it became a bestseller. And that's what spiraled or, or that's what got the newspaper syndications really going. And so in a way, it's a very symbiotic thing. The the books and the newspapers kind of feeding into one another and feeding to this long-term popularity. And of course, all of this happened um, a bit before I was old enough to read some of these, right? So by the time I got to Calvin and Hobbes, they were sort of Calvin and Hobbes were sort of common parlance, like mm. adults talked about them around me already. So I don't think I actually remember a time when they weren't a big deal. So it's actually quite interesting do, doing the research for this and kind of recognizing um, how unlikely that that climb to success uh, was for someone like Bill Watterson. That climb to success, which I mean, if we think about the long-term legacy of it, so you pointed out that Calvin and Hobbes is kind of pop culture parlance, and it still is, despite the fact that he stopped publishing in 1995 and has never continued. Like, Did like, it shock you to realise it's been that long? I mean, I knew, but I also kind of didn't know. I think I remembered it because I was like, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me with this? This is all I get. So yeah, I mean, when we're talking about the success of Calvin and Hobbes and the work of Bill Watterson as a writer in particular, we're actually speaking about possibly the narrowest window of any of our bibliography authors because it's actually November 18, 1985 to December 31st, 1995. And uh, the various kinds of uh, discourse around that is part of what we're going to get into in the second half of our show. We're talking today about Bill Watterson because it is, if you're listening to it on Tuesday night, um, it is actually his birthday today, July 5th. Let us know, did you grow up 
reading, enjoying Calvin and Hobbes? Did you encounter it in the newspaper or, you know, through the collections? WhatsApp us 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Beyond Frivolous Matters, BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Hello, everybody. You are listening to Buy the Book with Lynn and Sharmila. And today on our bibliography episode, we are celebrating Bill Watterson um, because it is, well, his birthday is July 5th. Seemed like a good time. And um, we mentioned earlier that when you talk about his work as a writer, really you're talking about Calvin and Hobbes. Okay, there's a lot of other stuff to unpack, but first I think we should talk about why Calvin and Hobbes has been, was, remains, likely to remain so appealing. Oh, how do we even start? Um, I think it's so many things, right? One is the idea of that imaginary friend, something that everyone can can associate with, can can identify with. And then there's Calvin, who's just like the scampiest, cutest kid, um, who has these big ideas that almost seem too big for him. And then Hobbes, the sort of ever-patient friend who's there by his side. Uh, there's so many things about it. And I think it's it's that push and pull of the childlike, innocent observations of the world, coupled with almost all the almost all the individual stories actually having a much more poignant adult point at the end. Some of them are silly. Some of them are just observational. Some of them can be deeply meaningful. But I think it's always that push and pull of having that multiple lens, the child lens and the adult lens. The child lens, the adult lens, the Hobbes lens, the Hobbesian, is he real? Is he not? What is Hobbes? Um, you know, just all that stuff packed into it. But I'm, I'm glad you brought up the poignancy because I think that the twin torchbearers of, of Kelvin and Hobbes are probably the sheer wacky funniness of it because there are things that Kelvin does and gets into the adventures that they get into um, the the fantastical adventures that exist within the spaces of the comic are still so wonderful and spectacular when I think about the the full page panels um, especially when you see them published not necessarily constrained by the size of a newspaper it's really something to marvel at so you have that um, but on the flip side you it's also about growing up, right? And about the ways in which being a child is filled with all this madness and joy, but also filled with these questions of what it means to not always be this age, what it means to not always have the friends you have, um, you know, and, and just all these things packed in, you throw in some philosophy, you throw in some environmental questions. It's a lot. And there's a lot of stuff for you to interact with, no matter how often or when you return to the pages. The most underrated parts of Calvin and Hobbes for me actually are the conversations between Calvin and his dad, um, because therein lies exactly the thing you're talking about. And, and I've realized that over the years, when I was much younger, I used to view the dad as this like slightly annoying, stodgy, cartoonish dad. And then as I've become older, I've started viewing him a little bit more with, with just that like an adult who looks back at childhood with a little bit of nostalgia, but is also forced to parent. Um, and, and I think that there's so much there. I, I think that um, Watterson gets a lot of credit for his art and mm. the creativity of his stories. But I think the capturing of those little nuances is actually really where he shines. So he actually said that he separated the acts of writing and drawing. 
Um, and he did so because he wanted to be able to give each its own focus. Um, he found writing to be the harder part. He said, you know, he might sit and stare at a wall and, and nothing might come to mind or he, he really needed that time to work things through. Whereas drawing was the fun part and he wanted to be able to imbue it with all the level of detail that he enjoyed from things like Pogo, which is uh, what we brought up earlier. And it is, I think, in the depth of storytelling, but also in the beauty and in some cases, the underrated intricacies of, of the art and the movement that you feel across the pages, that you really see the payoff of this process of, of keeping these things separate and giving each of them their own due. Oh, the art of Calvin and Hobbes is so gorgeous. Like it's, um, I, I love that he talks about not making a distinction between high art and low art, because I think looking at his panels, the way he depicts expressions on their faces, uh, the way Calvin can look joyful with one line and um, angry with another. Um, I really think that the way he draws his panels are genius. Um so it is actually really interesting to me that they don't happen as a piece because they feel so, uh, they feel like they came and occurred immediately. So um, knowing that he worked on each of them separately is actually really interesting. I also actually personally love the Spaceman Spiff interludes because they look so different from the rest of the comics, um, but also just kind of childlike and crazy and obviously inspired by the sci-fi superhero style of comic books, which um, Watterson himself was a huge fan of when he was a kid. I tried playing Calvin Ball a lot. So my, my soft spot is for Calvin Ball because that was just the dream, the, the ultimate way to fill long school holidays when you've watched all the TV that there is to watch and you're like, you know what would fill this void right now? Calvin Ball. So yeah, I agree. I love Spaceman Spiff, but it's the, the Calvin Ball sequences that also have my heart. Um, let's talk a little bit about the stuff that existed outside the writing and outside the, the artwork because... Um, there's a lot to unpack. So firstly, there's the fact that he's always resolutely wanted ownership. This is something I referred to earlier, right? But he never wanted anyone else to be able to, for example, continue uh, his comic if when he put down the pen. Uh, he did not want there to be Calvin and Hobbes mugs or plushies or the possibility of a Pixar film. He was actually asked about that, I think, in 2015. And he was like, no, no. Um, and I think that there is actually something to, or, or rather I personally really admire that. It is quite impressive, isn't it? In this day of adaptations and merchandising and the kind of success people reap from going down that path, that he has managed to not just not just making a stand, but holding on to that stand for decades. Like he is absolutely resolute so far anyway um, about not I think he calls it compromising the actual work um, he thinks that it would dilute the impact of the original if there were to be you know products that were hawking Calvin and Hobbes um, I think he also is famously resistant to anyone else having creative control over these characters which um, of course then translates into not wanting adaptations um, I find it fascinating I mean I will admit that a little bit there's a part of me that you know for instance a Pixar of a Pixar movie of Calvin and Hobbes I would I think I would be so thrilled if that happened but on the other hand I also get it there is also the fear that it would happen and it wouldn't be done well um, and maybe it's fine that we don't get anything more than this because this is a lot right I mean um the, in those 10 years, maybe because of the daily nature of the comic strip, there's actually a lot of content. There's a lot of stuff for you to look back on and enjoy and to create for yourself. I personally never want to hear Hobbes's voice. 
I don't think that there is any way on earth that you are going to be able to get the voice of Hobbes right, Um, you know, in comparison to whatever it has been in my own head. I think that Calvin, I don't want a shrill 80s kid situation with like an overly wise tiger. You know, it's it's not necessarily the thing that I want out of this. Um, And I also think that the full stop to Calvin and Hobbes is part of what adds to its poignancy. And that's the thing that I wanted to talk about because he has been asked a lot in every interview that he has granted, which is a rare thing about why he put, why he stopped, right? Um, When he could have continued for years and years and years. And his answer was pretty simple. I think he spoke about how he wanted to he wanted to stop before the wheels came off. Um, he wanted to stop before he ran it into the ground. He actually said the same people who write me now grieving the thing would probably be sending me death threats if I had continued and, and made it bad. So I think that that exhibits a kind of maybe discipline and self-awareness that we don't often see, especially when it comes to serialized things. Mm, I think he basically said he said everything he wants to say with mm. this and and it's reached its end point and I think that as a as an artist and a writer that's actually a really valuable thing to know you said self-awareness and that's exactly it um, I think also perhaps not being too taken with the whole success money fame route right because it also means that to a large extent you've created your legacy and that's it um, and you're resisting the impulse to build on it and and it goes back to what you said at the start of the show Lynn that he did it for himself. Um, And I think knowing why you did it until the end, doing it for yourself kind of helps you make that decision a little bit more easily. Um, You can see that in so many things, so many choices or decisions that he's made throughout his career because, so Bill Watterson's credited with changing the Sunday comic format. Yeah. um, Because he thought that the art was best suited to be displayed in a half-page format, which was never done before. Um, This was actually very controversial. And even other cartoonists sort of decried his um, decision that he would only publish his works in that format. Um, And then I think ultimately he actually said people could choose not to run his uh, strip if they didn't want to, which again is a big decision to make uh, because you lose out on, I don't know, a quarter or half of your market. But he stood by that. And and that actually led to many newspapers reformatting their Sunday comics pages. Which is where we come back to the central thing of art versus commerce, right? Because if you view yourself as an artist, then you want your art to be displayed in the format that best suits it. Um, the, the last thing I wanted to say, because I think that we haven't actually focused on this enough, is is the question of form and format because we we brought that up earlier but we spoke about it more in the context of how it shaped the the way it looks or the kinds of stories told but we haven't talked about the relentless nature of it because um, I think Bill Watterson is probably the first author uh, or the first writer that we are talking about who would have had to publish small chunks every single day and then to have that collected into these anthologies that nevertheless felt cohesive. And I think that there is something about writing in this particular way, small chunks, not even, he, I think he described it as um, a novel in a daily form. And I mean, I, I'm not sure enough credit goes towards the way the characters were developed over time within the constraints of this format. Yeah, because you're so deadline driven, right? Whether mm. you're happy with it, whether you have an idea, you have to have something something to submit at a particular time. Um, and yet, despite that, he managed to 
keep it going in a way that doesn't feel overstretched. Um, there are certainly many other long-running comics that after a while, comic strips rather, that after a while start feeling like they're quite samey or, you know, perhaps Monday and Friday are great, but like Tuesday to Thursday are kind of just meh. But you never felt that with uh, Kelvin and Hobbes. Like even if it was a single panel, even if it was a throwaway gag, they, they always felt like there was work put into it and thought put into it. Well, today we have been talking not just about Calvin and Hobbes, but um, their creator, Bill Watterson. And that's because it is our monthly bibliography episode and also because he was born on July 5th. So it really seemed like uh, an apropos time. Let us know, do you love Calvin and Hobbes? Do you remember? Do you have fond memories, I guess, of reading it? You can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899 and tweet us at BFM Radio. Write to us at bythebook at bfm.my. us to footnotes, which uh, by its nature today, because of who we're talking about, is going to be a really short one because in our bibliography episodes, we usually spend footnotes talking about adaptations. And as we established, I hope pretty firmly in the body of our main, in the main body of our episode, there are no adaptations to talk about. If you've seen one, it is bootleg. Yes. Um, in fact, if you see merchandising, Watterson calls it the works of thieves and vandals. <laughs> Yeah, so that's it, guys. That's our show. No, I, I jest. But I mean, in all honesty, I think the question here is whether or not we want either an adaptation of Calvin and Hobbes or whether we want a Christopher Robin-esque telling of Bill Watterson's life. And I think the simple answer is I want neither. I'm, I'm quite happy with the way things are. And I think because he has been so public about not wanting any form of adaptation, at this point, it would just feel disrespectful. I'm a big supporter of listening to what the original creator wants done with their work. And if this is not what Watterson wants, as much as I might want it, I don't think it's right that we demand it of him. Um, I also think that the creator is best positioned to know what's right for the work in terms of development or sequelizing or, or adapting. And if he thinks that it's not going to work and it's not best suited, then that's fine. I will say that the one thing I've seen, and this isn't an adaptation, but um, which I think has, has made the rounds and has become quite viral, um, is the little comic strip or, or even not a strip I, I guess it's a comic frame or panel uh, that has been going around of Calvin and Hobbes as adults mm. um, and that one's quite sweet and touching it's not by Watterson it's a tribute um, and, and there are versions of those that float around and once in a while you come across a really nice one and I think if you're someone who grew up reading Calvin and Hobbes that has a little just a little bit of a twinge I appreciate that I don't mind tribute works I am Sorry, but I realized I forgot to say something in, in uh, our main episode. So I'm just going to fit it into footnotes because like we said, no adaptations. Actually, we, we should probably have come up with something different <laughs> for this segment. Um, but what do we think of Hobbes? I can't believe we went through that entire conversation and we didn't talk about how uh, what our personal perceptions are of Hobbes's reality. I think I've always thought of Hobbes as an imaginary friend. Um, and I was actually hugely happy with that. Um, as, as a child, and I've said this before on other shows, I had an imaginary friend. Um, and so it seemed perfectly logical and normal that that's who Hobbes was. I have always thought that Hobbes was whoever 
whoever the person perceiving him needed him to be at that moment in time. Which is slightly different, I think, from an all-out imaginary friend. Um, mm. I liked the fact that the, the comic had an internal logic um, because it never breaks that internal logic, right? It, it never tries to play around with what Hobbes is or to say definitively one way or the next. The whole point is that as you're reading it, you are in this world where Hobbes is Hobbes, right? Like he is, on the one hand, a springy, very happy to see his boy, Tiger. Um, on the other hand, he's also a, a stuffed toy with a very neutral expression. So, it, it, you know, I appreciated the internal logic. I appreciated that it was never answered and that we get to put our own spin on it. And now here's the part where I loosely tie it, which is something that we wouldn't get in an on-screen adaptation. Cha-ching, here we go. <laughs> um, all right, we have been talking today about Bill Watterson and Kelvin and Hobbes. We'd like to hear from you. Um, I guess on the one hand, do you ever want to see an adaptation of Kelvin and Hobbes, but also in general, did you love them? Did you grow up reading them? Do you have fond memories of it? Uh, you can WhatsApp us 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio and write to us at buythebook at bfm.my. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To find more great interviews, go to bfm.my or find us on iTunes. BFM 89.9, The Business Station.